We're in Luke chapter 13. Verses 10 through 21 is really part two of verses 1 to 9. So let me just summarize verses 1 to 9, chapter 13. What we had there is that the people came to Jesus and they said, Jesus, what about these people that that Pontius Pilate murdered? They came to the temple and offered their sacrifices. And they were going to, the blood was, the blood from the animals was to atone for their sins. And he slaughtered them. And their own blood mixed with the blood that they were sacrificing. Did they do something really heinous? They must have done something really bad, right, Jesus? He said, no. No, they didn't do anything worse than you, and you're going to suffer the same eternal fate if you don't repent. Then he gave them an example. He said, and what about the 18 men that died just recently? We would have said probably pointing over to, in a direction of the Tower of Siloam. Would have been like a crane falling over. Apparently this tower that was built over near this pool of Siloam, which you can see in Jerusalem today, just fell over. That's, you know, what it means to fall over. I needed to illustrate that for you. Killed 18 men. What about those guys? Do you suppose, Jesus said, that they did something worse than everyone else? He said, I tell you no. But unless you repent of your sins, those of you who survived that, you will suffer the equal fate in eternity. Repent of your sins. Turn from your unbelief. Turn from your filthy lifestyles and follow the Lord God Almighty. That's what he's telling them. But they had the same attitude that people had today, and that is, well, when someone dies a horrible death, they must have done something extremely horrible. But that's not the case. I mean, there are good and godly people who go out on the mission field to share Christ who are literally eaten by cannibals. There are people that die of diseases. There are people that, a husband and wife, go overseas to to just simply share Jesus with pagans, and one of them gets sick, and they die. They're stuck there. Why? Lord, where are you? What did we do wrong? Nothing. You were born a sinner, you will die. Everyone does. But unless we repent of our sins, of our sinful lifestyle, unless we turn away, Jesus is saying, you will suffer likewise, except it will be in eternity. We're all going to die. And then so Jesus gives this little parable beginning in verse 6, and he's explaining the existence of evil. Why is there evil? How can a good God allow evil? The parable itself tells us why. He was telling him a parable. A man had a fig tree which he planted in his vineyard. And let me just tell it to you. You plant a tree, it wasn't producing any fruit. The landowner came and said, get rid of that tree, it's not doing anything. Uh, the, the vine dresser said, no, let me, let me cut around the tree, fertilize it, we'll till the soil, and let's give it another year and see what happens in another year. Landowner says, okay, fine. We'll see what happens in another year. Why is there evil? Because God, whatever evil is in your life, whatever evil we see out there today, God is working in the lives of people who have not yet repented in order to bring them to repentance. Maybe that was your testimony. Maybe that is your testimony. You ran from God. You rebelled against God. But God in his mercy kept you alive, directed you here and then here and then here, and showed you the way and brought you to Christ. And all the evil that you experienced, all the difficult times, you look back and now you know why. Or the evil we see in the world today, that's someone perhaps being tilled like this tree in God's grace. When the tree isn't producing fruit, when your life isn't giving him the worship that's due him. He's going to work with you until you do, and then he'll get rid of you if you don't. And so verse 10 is another example. You've got the example of of this uh, 
innocent worshipers dying. They must have done something horrible. You've got the example of innocent people dying with a a, a tower falling on them. And now we're going to have this woman who comes into the synagogue on the Sabbath. The Sabbath day in Israel is Saturday. Uh, The Sabbath, or I'm sorry, the the synagogue is a place where people gather. In fact, I'll give you a little bit of history here. When uh, the Jewish temple was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar in 586 B.C., he destroyed their temple. Without a temple, Jews can't be Jews. You have to have a temple to be a Jew, or you can be one racially. But the only way to worship God is to have a temple centralized in Jerusalem and have a priesthood that can mediate those sacrifices that worship God. Without a priesthood and without a temple, there is no worship of God for a Jew. And you'll note that that doesn't exist today. So Nebuchadnezzar obliterates the temple. The Jews go into captivity into Babylon, and they come back, and they rebuild their temple in 516 B.C. In the interim, they started meeting in places that became known as synagogues. It means to gather together. It's a gathering place. We would call it like a church building. So without the temple, in the absence of the temple, they found a synagogue. And they would come there. They didn't offer sacrifices, can't offer sacrifices, without a Levitical priest in the order of Aaron. But they would come and they would read scripture and they would worship. And it was actually also a place where... uh, um, people gathered for social gatherings. We were here last night just uh, at this church with the, uh, the empty nesters, and we played pickleball uh, over in the gym. You know, it's just a place to, to, to play, to have fun. We had dinner. We do that at this church. In those days, if you said the wrong thing or believed the wrong thing, you could get kicked out of the synagogue, and people like to avoid that because that was the central place to come and be with friends, to worship, to read Scripture, listen to Scripture. We see that in, uh, in fact, it's John chapter 9, uh, where the disciples come across the man born blind. In fact, even them in that particular context, even them, even they in that context, were asking Jesus, Jesus, was this guy born blind because his parents did something really bad or because he did something really bad? That was their attitude. You do something bad, you have something bad happen. But that's not the way it works. Jesus said neither. His parents didn't do anything wrong. He didn't do anything wrong. This man was born blind so that he could be here at this day, at this moment, for me to be here present so that he could receive his sight so that people could glory in what God is doing. That's why he was born blind. You think, well, that's not right. That's not fair. Well, tell that to God. That's not uh, something that he negotiates. Perhaps that man born blind needed that tilling around his tree, as it were. Perhaps his parents needed that. Parents grow exponentially when their children are hurting, don't we? Because we want that hurt on us. We don't want it on them. But God grows us in the process. Perhaps God was growing them. But anyway, when, when the man was given his sight, they brought the parents in. And the parents didn't want to fess up to the fact that he had been born blind because they didn't want to be kicked out of the synagogue and lose fellowship. So here we are. Chapter 13, verse 10, as he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, Jesus liked to go in on the Sabbath so he could ruffle some feathers. And he did that a lot, and he'll do it here. Uh, And there was a woman who was 18 years, who for 18 years had a sickness caused by a spirit or a demon. And she was bent double and could not straighten up at all. So imagine this woman bent over. She's just, she only looks at the floor. She can only see the ground. However tall she is, she's actually short up to her waist. You look at this woman and you think like the rest of them, she must have done something really bad. Anyone who would be in a condition like that, wow, they must have really done something horrific. So she just adds to the examples here. Um, 
you Latin speakers, you can correct me if you want, but uh, uh, some have surmised that her condition is called spondylitis deformis. And it would have been that she was bent over and the, the bones of her spine had all fused together, uh, completely closing the joint where probably she could just stand up at the hip. She was bent over. Imagine that. Your whole life is spent. We should get up and just demonstrate this to ourselves. And just walk around staring at the ground. Someone says, hey, how you doing? The pain of just having to look up and say, hey, who was that? Hey, good to see you. These people, unfortunately, make us uncomfortable. What do, you, what do you say to such a one when you're being introduced to her? Hey, I'm, I'm Lance. How are you doing? They make us uncomfortable, not because they're at fault, but because we're at fault. The poor thing is at the synagogue on the Sabbath. She apparently is a faithful attender. In spite of her condition, she's there. I'm reading into this, but I really love this woman for all that's not said about her. She's there. It had to be horrible to get up and get there. It had to be horrible to be around people and not see them, not be able to talk face to face with them. If I had this condition, I would just stay at home. I don't even want to, I don't even want to bother. Would you be that way? Some of you, you are. We get a little sick or, or we get a backache. I don't really want to be around anybody today. There she was. Eighteen years. How about just 18 minutes? And again, fitting into this context of she must have done something really bad. She had a sickness. Note, it's caused by a spirit. Look over to verse 16. I'm jumping ahead, but in verse 16, Jesus says that she is a daughter of Abraham whom Satan has bound for these 18 years. Now, is she possessed by a demon? Jesus never casts it out. Is the demon causing her affliction? Probably. It certainly seems like it. It's, it says it's caused by a spirit that Satan himself is responsible for. Satan doesn't have to possess us to oppress us, does he? And some things we would say could be caused by him. But let me ask you this. Who is, who is using, now this is the answer in all church questions, but who is using Satan to his own glory? God. Satan is just a tool in God's bag. And God uses Satan. I'm going to jump out here. I don't know it, so don't call me a heretic, but I'm going to jump out of the limb here and say that perhaps this woman fits the illustration of the tree in verses 6 to 9, who for 18 years has been oppressed by a demon, and God in his mercy is working on her. I don't know, but it could be. It fits the context. She is stricken by this spirit, bent over double, could not straighten up at all. Verse 12. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, woman, you are freed from your sickness. It's beautiful there what he says, but notice all the things that he doesn't say. Go back with me to uh, uh, chapter 8, just to the left. Remember that woman in chapter 8 that came up to Jesus and it's a huge crowd. And she just wants to, she knows enough about Jesus to say, if I can get in that huge crowd and just grasp the bottom of his garment, just touch him, touch anything about him, I can be healed. She's been bleeding for 12 years. She's unclean. When you're unclean, you don't go to Sabbath synagogue. You don't go around anybody because you will make them unclean. But she's going out on a limb. She has this great faith if I just touch his garment. And she does. Jesus feels the power going out of him, doesn't see her. And in chapter 8, verse 48, he said to her, Daughter, 
Your faith has made you well. Go in peace. He calls her daughter. That's beautiful. As if to say, my little daughter. Is there anything more precious than a man's daughter? There isn't to me. My little baby. Where is she? I'm going to embarrass her really good. I don't know where she is, but there she is. There's the apple of my eye. I mean it. And I will kill and maim anyone who bothers her. My daughter. That doesn't happen here. He doesn't call her daughter, although he refers to her as a daughter of Abraham, meaning she's Jewish. She's a descendant of Abraham. She just comes up. She just goes to, uh, I should say, she's just there at, the, at the, uh, the synagogue to worship. Jesus calls her. He sees her. Apparently, no one else does. Maybe she's such a regular that no one bothers to see her. No one is helping her. But Jesus notices her, and I love that. Let me make a quick application. Notice these people. Not just the sick ones. Not just the people in wheelchairs or on crutches. Or the people that have uh, some sort of uh, a, something they were born with that causes them to be not like you. Notice not only them, but notice the people whose gaze in their eyes is empty and cold. All they do is stare at the ground in a manner of speaking. They're lost. They haven't repented. Their lives are hopeless where no one notices them. They're unnoticed. They're unloved. Notice them. Stand out in the foyer or outside and watch people come in. You'll notice the infirm and the handicapped, but notice a little deeper into the people's eyes. Oh, you'll see teenagers and their attitudes, and you'll see moms and dads with their attitudes. You'll see older people with theirs. You'll see the lost and ask God to help you see, but notice them. I notice here that no one appears to have noticed her except Jesus. He notes her. And he called her over. She's not running over to get to him. She's not asking him for healing. He called her over and said to her, woman, not daughter, woman, you are freed from your sickness. Now, the fact that she doesn't jump up and start screaming means that she's, wait, are you talking to me? Still bent over? having been that way for 18 years, has no idea that she can now pop up. And he laid his hands on her. I, I, would, I would add his healing, loving, and beautiful hands on her. He already loosed her from her problem. And then he touches her. A woman that probably hasn't been touched in 18 years. Not hugged. Not patted. Not had her hair stroked by someone that loves her. She's just an outcast and probably in the eyes of the people there has done something so horrific we don't even want to be associated with her. And Jesus calls her over and notices her. You're healed. Come here. Come here, ma'am. And he puts his hand on her. Oh, what must have that felt like to be touched by Jesus. Probably the same way that woman felt in chapter 8 when she touched the hem of his garment and felt that power come through through faith. She shows no faith here. Jesus just calls her over because he chose to. He noticed her. You are freed. The perfect passive verb here means that you are freed permanently. This isn't coming back. Because the past tense of this verb in Greek text is that which happens and has ongoing effects. You are 100% and from this day forward, freed. I did it. Thou art loosed. 
T.D. Jakes wrote a whole book on that, completely out of context, telling women, you are loosed. You're loosed from the oppression of society. Is that what it says? Is that what he's trying to say? He's simply taking a woman who is bound by sickness, bound by this problem, and making her well. He laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made erect again. It's almost like he nudged her up. Come here, let me help you. And pops. And can you imagine? Wouldn't you have liked to have been in the front row of the people at the synagogue that day to see that woman's face? The eyes as big as saucers? And what did she do? Well, she does what is the natural fruit of having been set free. She began glorifying God. Again, we see nothing here about her coming to Jesus saying, if I have faith, you'll heal me. Will you please heal me? There's no faith on her part whatsoever. Do we need faith? Faith is good. But Jesus can work without it as he did. And immediately, not over time, Jesus didn't say, now I need you to find, you're probably going to need a good chiropractor here. Make sure you get some ongoing help because that back is going to... No, when Jesus heals, it's done, over, finished. No therapy needed, right? It's all finished. When he makes us holy, when he, when he saves us, the moment you come to know Christ, I don't care what you've done or how bad you've been, you don't have anything else to do. He already did it all, right then and there. Through faith in Christ, done, finished over spend the rest of your life glorifying God for what he did not trying to add to it now you would think everyone in the synagogue that day oh well this is just fantastic let's sing a song break out the music minister break out the guitars and the organist and let's start singing with this woman let's put her up there at the front she's probably got a beautiful voice even if she can't carry a tune no one is more up for glorifying God at this point than this woman. But that's not what happened. It's always this guy in the crowd. But the synagogue official, indignant. What? How could anyone be mad at a place like this? I want you to turn back with me to Luke 4, verses 18 and 19, just real quick. Probably don't need me to go over this again, but I, I want to because... Just shows this is what Jesus has been doing all along. Even better, it's what Jesus was sent to do. It's what he came to do. It's what he says. His first words coming out of the 40 days of wilderness, being tempted by the devil, he goes to his own hometown in Nazareth, into the synagogue, and he reads in chapter 4, verse 18, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. By the way, he's reading from Isaiah chapter 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. That's what he's done. That's what the Messiah came to do. Written in Isaiah's prophecy 700 years prior, Jesus has just, he's been doing it. He's done it again. And the synagogue official, you would expect this man who's in charge of the synagogue. These were unpaid positions, by the way. He wasn't the pastor. Uh, he might have been one of the older men, one of the elders in charge of it. This wasn't the place where sacrifices were made. He was just in charge of the synagogue. You would expect this guy, if he represented me at some level, being a pastor, that he would be 
thrilled over what just happened. But no, he was indignant. Why? Because he hated Jesus? No, because he healed on the Sabbath. Well, we can all empathize with that, right? I mean, who heals on the Sabbath? What a dumb thing to do. What difference does it make what day it is? See, this is what it means to be a legalist. A legalist is someone who makes a bunch of rules, man-made rules, abides by those man-made rules, and forgets God's word. We've got a lot of those in religions today and in denominations today. We've got a lot of them. They may not be official at, at a particular church, but they're going to be, uh, they might be on, uh, in our minds, what we do and we don't do. We can't do that, we can't do that, can't do this. We must do this, must do this, we must do that. These are legalisms. If you want to do those things, fine, but don't foist those on the world if God's word doesn't tell us to do it. God's word is given to the Israelites and says, on the seventh day, seventh day, the Sabbath day, do no work. It was God's gift to men, to women, to people. Here, rest one day a week. That was his gift. In fact, Mark 2, 27, Jesus says, the Sabbath was made for man, Jesus says, not man for the Sabbath. If man was made for the Sabbath, then the Sabbath would be ruling the man. Do this, don't do this, don't do this. No, God made the Sabbath for man. The day of rest was for man. To put a bunch of rules around the Sabbath is to make man subservient to the Sabbath. And I say all this to say this, and I'll just read you some of the, some of the ridiculous things they had added to that made the Sabbath, the rabbis of the day. It's not in the Bible. Um, this could be found in what's called the oral tradition that's written down today in what's called the Mishnah. It says this. The Mishnah says this. The camel may go out with its curb, the female camel with its nose ring, the Libyan donkey with its bridle, the horse with its chain, and all beasts which wear a chain may go out with a chain and be led by the chain, and these things may be sprinkled and immersed without being removed. Huh? Number two, the donkey may go out with his saddle cloth on if it was fastened on the day before. They don't be putting any, any cloth on the back of a donkey on the Sabbath day. You know what that'll get you. That's sarcasm, by the way. You, you've not read this in the Bible. Why? Because it ain't there. Number four, a camel may go out with a rag hung to its tail or with four and hind legs bound together or with hoof tied to thigh. So too it is with all other cattle. Number four, and finally, the donkey may go out with its saddle cloth if this was fastened on before the Sabbath or with a bell even though it is plugged or with a ladder yoke round its neck with a leg strap. <laughs> Well, that'll put you to sleep in a hurry. If you have insomnia, get yourself a copy of the Mishnah. In other words, we have added a bunch of man-made items to what you can and can't do on the Sabbath. Nothing in the Sabbath, or nothing in the Mishnah, anywhere ever that says, thou shalt not heal. Did Jesus do a work here? Did, did you read a work when he said, woman, you are healed? All I see is a word. And, and, you know, the funny part about it is that the Sabbath or the synagogue official sounds like, you know, well, not, not another day, a bunch of miracles. It's like miracles happen there all the time. Don't come in and do your little miracles. No one's ever done this before. You see, unbelievers, people that cannot, will not, will never believe, will scoff at everything you throw at them. No matter what you say, even if you could perform miracles, they're going to scoff at it. 
Now, we don't know who they are, so we're going to keep giving them the information. Maybe at some point they will repent. And maybe this guy later did, but he's indignant. How dare you heal that woman? We want her walking around here completely unnoticed, totally unloved, and in her horrible state of being for at least another couple of years. How dare you come and heal her? That's essentially what he's saying. He began saying to the crowd in response. Note this. Let's go back and read that one again. Verse 14. Synagogue official indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath began saying to the crowd in response. What a coward. He won't even address Jesus. Jesus just told the woman. He doesn't look at Jesus and say, now Jesus, come on. We don't do that on the Sabbath. He's too embarrassed. He looks out at the crowd trying to bring the crowd against Jesus. You think the crowd's going to go with this guy? He began saying to the crowd in response, there are six days in which work should be done. Yeah, Exodus chapter 20, verse 9, it does say that. But it doesn't say uh, that you can't speak someone into uh, uh, wellness again. There are six days in which work should be done. So come during them. Come during those six days and get healed. Not on a Sabbath day. Folks, if you're a legalist, if you have come up with man-made rules of things you can eat, and not eat. I'm not talking about your diet. Maybe you can't eat gluten, for instance. It's part of your diet and your health because you can't have it. Your body rejects it. Or you're a vegetarian or a vegan or whatever it might be. That's not what we're talking about here. But if you have something that you think makes you holy because you don't do on a particular day, like eat meat on Fridays... Do you think, do you honestly think with any bit of common sense that God's saying, that is a good man and a good woman. They, that Lance and his wife went and had steaks at Saltgrass, but they ate vegetables. Wow, which one's holier? Come on. People believe that. You didn't do this, you did do that. Those are legalisms, man-made ridiculousnesses. There's your new word for the day. Come during the rest of the week. You can't do that on the Sabbath. The Sabbath is the best day to do it. Everyone gathered to see the glory of God. And while he's talking to the crowd and his cowardliness, cowardice is the word, right? It's another new word for you. Verse 15, the Lord answered him and said, you hypocrites. You is plural. That's why hypocrites is plural. So he's denouncing all of the religious leaders that are there that day. You guys are a bunch of hypocrites. You act like you're holy. You act like you are some sort of God-fearing men. You act like you are this high and lofty, pious man that people are to look to. You are nothing but actors. You're acting. That's not who you are. You may look it and talk like it, but you're a hypocrite. That's what the word means. It means an actor, one who's playing a role. Lord answered him, you hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or donkey from the stall and lead him away to water him? In other words, on the Sabbath day, donkeys and camels, they need water. When you go up to your, your place of worship or your, you go to a gas station in Israel in the first century, you tie your donkey, don't want him running off. Your camel, when it's time to come out, oh, they need a drink. You untie it. That takes work. I'd untie a knot. By the way, there's rules on how many knots you can untie in the Mishnah. 
on how far it can go, but you untie it, you take it to water, you are, apparently, that's no big deal to, the, to them. And Jesus says, look, you take a dumb animal, no disrespect to animals, but it's a dumb animal, you untie the dumb animal, which is not made in the image of God, and you give him life by taking him to get water. That's his point. Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or donkey from the stall and lead him away to water him? And this woman, he could have easily said, this woman made in the image of God, a daughter of Abraham, a descendant of God's chosen man, Abraham, as she is, whom Satan has bound for 18 long years, should she not have been released from this bond on the Sabbath day? Man, I wish I could answer people that argue with me that easily. And, and, and they shut up and they never say another word. Jesus gets to do that. I've never had this, the pleasure. You give people the answer, you know that great answer that Jesus gives in John 8? He among you is out sin, throw him first stone. They all go away. They don't argue with him because he gets them with one statement. You guys water your dumb animals. Shall I not give life to this woman made in the image of God, one of our own people? From the descendants of Abraham? He stretches it out. She has been bound by Satan for 18 years. Should she not be released from this bond on the Sabbath day? As he said this, all his opponents were being humiliated. (laughs) Anyone feeling sorry for them? I'm not. People that are this ridiculously pig-headed, unbelieving need to be humiliated in the here and now and in the hereafter God is so good he has just healed a woman that no one even bothered to notice and there are people railing against him for doing it why because he did it no because he did it on one particular day over another day and the entire crowd was rejoicing over all the glorious things being done by him The problem of evil. There it is again. This woman, 18 years bound, would be asking, why, Lord, why? If you can heal me, why don't you heal me? Maybe in her 16th year, she had given up hope. Lord, I've been this way for 16 years. I know you can do it. The fact that you won't do it must mean you don't love me. God's answer would have been, just just wait. Just wait. It's all panning out for the sovereign God. So let me put you in the same position. What are you praying about right now? Lord, what's the deal? I've been praying about this for X amount of years. I've been struggling with this. I don't understand this. Why do you let this happen? Do you see that God is sovereign and in control? Just wait. I've got it planned. Lord, I am, I, I'm waiting for the, my spouse. I'm waiting for the person that I love to, to find that person. I've been to all these apps and all these bars and all these prayers I've prayed. And where is it? Lord, do you not love me? You could give me a spouse. You could give me someone to love, someone to love me back. I know you can. If you're not doing it, you must not love me. Why does God allow evil? Chapter 13, verses 6 to 9. It's right there in the parable. God in his mercy allows us to suffer for a time. Fertilizing us, sending us the right people, putting us through the right difficulties till we finally reach the end of our rope and say, Lord, I give. Uncle, I give up. And God's response is, thank you for your own sake. That's what I've been trying to bring you to. Trying to manipulate people 
and things in life to fit what you think in the time period that you think it should happen. God's, I think God's command to all of us is, you people just let me be God? Just let me be God? I know you don't. Quit your griping. Now, that doesn't mean that we can't pray. We can't gripe in our prayers. God accepts those. But at some point, you got to quit your griping. Lord, I know you're in charge. I know that the person that I love that has not come to Christ and is not there yet, they're in your hands. Me praying over and over and over, day and night, and tears and, and giving money and, and asking other people to pray is not making this happen any quicker. Lord, I surrender. You be you. And in time, sometimes it's 18 years of hell on earth like it was for this woman. But in that moment, I would imagine the glory and way she felt when she was healed, she forgot all the years that she was ill. That day, there was a little piece of the kingdom of heaven that was sown. This woman illustrates it. So Jesus gives two quick parables here. Verse 18 through 21. So he, that is Jesus, was saying, what is the kingdom of God like? He bleeds right into this little parable. What is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It's like a mustard seed. Mustard seed, folks, is so tiny, you would mistake it for dirt. It's, if you get a mustard seed, it has a little shell around it, which is tiny enough. You open the shell, and it's just the tiniest of little specks. Easily mistake it for dirt. So it starts off small. By the way, it's not the tiniest of all, but it certainly is the tiniest in Israel. Matthew makes the case it's the smallest of seeds, at least that you know of. But it starts off so tiny. Here's what the kingdom of God is like. You want to know what the kingdom of God is like? Here it is. What shall I compare? It's like a mustard seed, which a man took, threw into his own garden, and it grew and became a tree. And the birds of the air nested in its branches. You ever planted a seed? What happens the first day? Nothing. You put it in there, nothing happens. Second day, nothing. And something's happening. We know that now, but nothing we can see. It takes time. It starts small. In the case of a mustard seed, these things can grow over 15 feet tall. So what was just a little, little speck between two fingers goes into the ground and becomes a tree to the point where birds flying in the air say, hey, that looks like a good place to stop and nest for a day. It starts small. This woman who is unnamed is a complete nobody that no one cares about, that no one notices except Jesus. She is indicative of a little piece of dirt, a little seed that looks like dirt. The kingdom of God started off small. Verse 20, and he said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It's like leaven or yeast, which a woman took and hid in three pecks of flour. By the way, three pecks of flour is about 50 pounds worth of dough until it was all leavened. Take a little bit of leaven, 50 pounds of dough, put the little bit of leaven in, just a little bit, just imagine it, 50 pounds, I go, is this what 50 pounds of dough looks like? 50 pounds of dough. I don't know. I've never had 50 pounds of dough. So maybe those of you who need dough, you would know. Need meaning K-N-E. <laughs> little bit in there, and it permeates the entire batch. 50 pounds. That's what the kingdom of God is like. It's like that mustard seed. Starts off small, permeates the whole batch. See, the kingdom of God 
started off with this carpenter from Nazareth, the king of glory, the creator of heaven and earth, became a man. Had 12 guys with him. They weren't too sure about him for a while. Cowered up in an upper room after he was crucified. Later, in Acts chapter 1, we see 120 people. That's what Jesus produced when he left. That's what the Lord God Almighty produced after he ascended into heaven. 120 people in his church. How about that? That's all. 120 people. What a failure. Because we look at churches at 120 people and we go, God must not be with them. He's with the guys that are doing 10,000, 20,000 member churches. No, he ain't. Do you see that? A little wag of the hand? No. That doesn't mean God is with that church. 120 people soon became 3,000. And then 5,000 were added by Acts chapter 4. And then so many thousands, the church apparently quit counting them. And that church moved from Jerusalem into Antioch. And it moved over west as it made its way into Asia Minor, modern Turkey. Modern Turkey used to be the bastion of Christianity, the center point of it at one time. Makes its way into the old Roman Empire. Goes here, goes there, fizzles out. You'd think all those people remain Christian, but we know that's a Muslim part of the world. No one believes in Christ over there. Very few, very few. It's made his way if you're following uh, our, our Wednesday night class in church history. We're following where the church went. We're watching it move. We're watching it move. It's going to make its way west. It's going to make its way all the way back around to Jerusalem when Jesus returns. All the way around the world. Except in the way all the way around, he's not Christianizing everything. In the wake, people become unbelievers. Now, you may have heard some of post-millennialism. You know that we are a premillennialist church, meaning that we believe we live in a time prior to the second coming of Christ. And when he does return, he will set up his 1,000-year kingdom on this earth. The millennium, bring it, right, Maggie? Let it come. Well, there's another group of people called post-millennialists. I'm not railing against them and saying they're not our brothers in Christ. They are our brothers in Christ. But post-millennialism had its heyday around the 1800s. And it was, it's a belief that, we're, that, it's, that the gospel will go out to the world, and the more people believe it, the greater Christianized the world will become, and then Jesus will return. So we share the gospel, the gospel becomes large all over the world, and then Jesus returns. So we inaugurate his kingdom by bringing Christianity to the world. Well, that's a good push for evangelism, and nothing wrong with a good push for evangelism. But that's not what's happened. Here's what was happening, by the way. Um, uh, This particular man wrote a book. Um, His his name is Sidney Gulick. And his view of the kingdom of God back in the 1800s. This is what he says. He says, the Christian powers, and it's based on these parables, by the way. Starts off small, gets big. He says, the Christian powers have increased the territory under their rule from about 7% of the surface of the world in 1600 to 82% of the population by 1893. Now, if that's the peak, if 82% of the population was Christian In 1893, that would have been the perfect time for Jesus to come if post-millennialism ruled the day. While the non-Christian powers receded during that time from 93% of the world to about 18% over the same period. He said, at present, the Protestant nations alone rule about twice as much territory as all the non-Christian nations combined. 
And so what you're getting from this guy is, this is what's happening and Jesus is going to come back. They take that from these parables. Another lecture, Helmut Thaliki, the University of Hamburg, Hamburg says this, we must not think of it as gradual Christianization. This is after it, was, it had the, the idea we're going to Christianize the world and Jesus is going to come back. A bad thing happened in the 20th century. World War I, the Great War, World War II, Korean War, Vietnam, wars. And so this guy is looking back at the end of World War II and he says, we must not think of it as gradual Christianization of the world, which will increasingly eliminate evil. Such dreams and delusions, which may have been plausible enough more in more peaceful times, have vanished in the terrors of our man-made misery. The 19th century, which brought forth a number of these dreams and dreamers, strikes us today as being an age of unsuspecting children. Who can utter the word progress today without getting a flat taste in his mouth? Who can still believe today that we are developing toward a state in which the kingdom of God reigns in the world of nations, in culture, and in the life of the individual? The earth has been plowed too deep by the curse of war. The streams of blood and tears have swollen all too terribly. Injustice and bestiality have become all too cruel and obvious for us to consider such dreams to be anything but bubbles and froth. In other words, after the 20th century, the wars of the 20th century, the deaths, it's evident that the world is not getting better. It's getting what? It's getting worse. And in the 21st century where we are today, it's all the worse. And we just see it getting worse. So is that what the kingdom parables mean? No, the kingdom parables mean that it starts off small like a woman like this who stands up straight and glorifies God. And we see the effectiveness Note that word, effective, not affectiveness, but with an E, the effectiveness of the kingdom. It's effective in the sense that it is permeating the world, bringing out God's people, chosen and called from the beginning of time, and infuriating those who hate him and who always will. That's what we just saw. That's effective. It might not be Christianizing everybody. It never says it would. But that seed went in the ground with Christ, started off 120 people, 3,000, 5,000 more, thousands more, and it begins to fizzle. In fact, we are told in 2 Thessalonians that before the end comes, the love of many will grow cold. There will be a great apostasy, a great leaving of the faith. That's what we watch now, and we will continue to watch it happen until the rapture of the church. The kingdom of God started off small. Its effect is worldwide. That doesn't mean that everyone's going to come to know Christ. But it does separate. And didn't Jesus just say that in the context? Didn't he say that at the end of chapter 12? I didn't come to make peace, but to bring division. And doesn't Jesus' very name, the Christ, Jesus Christ, doesn't that very name bring division? The effectiveness of the kingdom has absolutely been set. That seed is growing some of us, like the birds, there at the end of chapter, verse 19, in my, in my uh, translation, it says the birds of the air are nested in all its branches. Uh, it's in caps. How many of you have, are in caps there? Someone asked me today, why is that the case? It's because God is yelling at us. No, it's just a quote from Ezekiel. It's usually in, it's, it's in all caps when it's a quote. Some of us are finding rest in that tree that, that bloomed. Others are of the world are trying to cut down that tree. 
Others are just like that synagogue official that are indignant. Some are glorifying God. Others are indignant. Those who are in the middle who are apathetic are even worse than the indignant ones. What do we learn about those apathetic people from Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 to 7? No, that's not that one. It's Revelation chapter 3. It's in the church of Laodicea, isn't it? You make me want to puke. Because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, you make me sick. You're either glorifying God because you've repented of your sins, or you are indignant about what God has done, or you're right down the middle and worse than the ones that are indignant. Because at least the indignant are really hot in their hatred. The apathetic ones, eh. Another day at church, another sermon from the preacher, another whatever, let's go home, it's time to take a nap. You kids, you went to camp this week. We don't make youth camp so that you can just go have a good time. That's not our purpose. We want you to have fun. But your teachers prayed for you. Your church prayed for you here. We looked at the pictures, those of us who have Facebook, and every time we did, we prayed again. God, let the gospel be heard. It wasn't just about you having fun. We're not interested in whether you came back and had the time of your life. We want that to be, but we want to know. Did you hear the gospel? Oh, I know you heard it with your ears. But did you take it in? You're going to repent of your sins and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved? That's the point of camp. Don't go away and say, camp is just a blast. Tell me about what you learned. I don't know, but we had fun. You missed it if that's the case. You might as well be the indignant person that said, you don't need to do that, Sabbath. The voice of God is lovingly and mercifully crying out, believe, repent of your sins, and you will be saved. He doesn't care what you've done. He doesn't factor that in because he knows that the blood of Jesus washes it all clean. You can't have a sin that his blood does not wash. That's the message of love, the love of our God. He came to live our lives and die our deaths. He openly gives his message, believe in me. You're sick, I'll heal you. I love you. I want to bring you. Either believe or be indignant, be apathetic. Choose A and you shall be saved. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Repent of your sins. You shall be saved. Let's pray. Lord, don't let an unbeliever escape this room today. Don't let him get out of here without facing you, the Lord God Almighty, the lover of their souls, the forgiver of sins. These kids have had a good time this week. They're exhausted. They heard things. Maybe just what little they might remember. Let it be the gospel. Let it be that Jesus loves them, that Jesus saves them. May they repent of their sins and trust in you. For those of us who know you, don't let us out of this room today without a deeper walk with you, a deeper commitment to you. You notice us, Lord. You noticed us like you noticed that woman, bent over, decrepit, lost and without hope. And you healed us. You healed us. May we notice the same people. 
May we give them the love of Christ. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. May God bless you, my good friends, as you go. You've been listening to a sermon by Dr. Lance Waldy, Senior Pastor of Harvest Bible Church in Cypress, Texas. 